0: Father in heaven, thank you that we can look into your word today. Like Moses, who wants to know you, wants to see your glory, we ask the same. We need to see your glory, Lord. We need to know you deeper. And you've provided all that we need in the word of God, the spirit of God that dwells within the believer. What a great blessing. Lord, I hope in our minds and our hearts to your truth. Lord, if we have sin that needs to be convicted of and repented of, may you do that tonight. If we're lacking in joy because of those things, Lord, we ask that you would return our joy through confession and repentance. Lord, we want to walk with you. We want to know you, Lord. So I pray you'd strengthen us for those things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see Bill Cochran sitting over there with his bride. Glad you're here, Bill. (laughs) Exodus chapter 33 is our text this morning. We'll do our best to get through, or this evening, um, to get through this. I love slowing down in these passages. They're some of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. And the more I studied them, the more I realized what I didn't know is I got into them in a verse-by-verse way of studying and presenting them. But well, let me ask you some questions. Do you, do you enjoy the full blessing of God's presence in your life? Well, before you answer that, think about that. What does that look like in your life? The, the full presence of God residing within you. Now we know he resides in us at salvation. It's the baptism of the Spirit. That's no mysterious thing. That is, when we're saved, God places his own spirit within us for eternity. But yet we can quench the work of the Spirit by ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And we can miss out on the joy that God has for us, can't we? We all know that. David knew that his sin robbed him of the joy of his salvation and he wanted that back. Psalms 51. But there are times as believers we understand the full blessing of God's presence when we've confessed sin and we're walking with him and there's a desire to know him more and we're fellowshipping with him, even in our suffering, we can have such joy. See, sin will make it difficult to see the hand of God in your life. It isn't that God isn't there. Our sin will blind us and often cause us to not recognize what he's doing, not sense his direction and understand his will for our life. I get asked quite often, Pastor, what's God's will for my life, usually with young people? And I don't know. They just didn't give me that magic wand at seminary. I I don't know. But I do know what will blind you from God's will is unrepentive, continual sin. You'll You'll have a very, very difficult time finding what God has for you. And of course, that affects your marriage, your parenting, your job. It affects so many things. And I think it's, it's not rocket science for us to say, Does God, can God bless sin? So people say, well, I want God to bless me and direct me. So, we, so what we do is we're working through that. We say, okay, what's your life like? Is our life dedicated to Christ? Are we, are we confessing sin regularly? Are we turning from those things? Are there areas in our life that we know are not pleasing to God, and we deal with those? Is there desires? Is there lustful desires? And remember, the word lust is not just always um, sexual in some way. It's desiring after something more than God. Is there, are those things there, and it'll it'll make it very difficult to find where I go, who I marry, what I do, where you know, what job to take. And so finding the full blessing of God, his presence that is with us, often is because so di- there's a difficulty because of sin. Disobedience will always cause you to feel alone if you're a Christian. It will cause you to feel alone. You know that old poem, you know, they're walking down the sand and he looks back and he says, you know, there's only one footprint." you know that one. I, I've, always mis- I've always interpreted that different. It's because the guy, it was sin. (laughs) He felt alone because of his sin. And yes, God is gracious and never leaves us and carries us through difficult times like a little poem in the sand says. But often it is our sin that causes us not to sense his presence and understand the power of the Lord Jesus Christ residing with us through the Spirit of God. Now, as you remember last week when the nation of Israel fell into great sin, didn't they? They decided that Moses may be dead. We don't know what happened to this fellow, they said. So they decide to get Aaron and pressure Aaron and have him make an idol for them. And you remember, they tore off their earrings and ornaments and gave them to him. And of course, Aaron says, you know, well, I just threw him in the fire and this calf jumped out. And next thing you know, the whole nation's dancing and singing and immorality and godlessness and have broken the first two commands before they can get off the mountain with them. And God's had it with them. He tells again Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and begin with you. And Moses steps into that, interme- that mediator role again and he begins to plead on behalf of the nation. In fact, so much, remember uh, Moses said, blot my name out. If you're going to blot theirs, out, you have to blot mine out. Forgive them and blot me out. Verse 33, and God says, okay, I'm not going to do that, but go ahead and lead the people and I'll send, I'll send an angel. And this is where we left off because God said, look, there's a day coming. Well, I will punish them for their sins. And verse 35 says they smote them and we no, that was probably maybe some pestilence, but probably when the Levites rose up and followed Moses through the camp and slew those who would stay in rebellion and wouldn't stop the godless behavior that was going on. And then we get to chapter 33, and here I want to point out four things today to understand how to, get and see, how to see God's glory. That's what Moses is after ultimately. And first of all, we have to figure out what causes isolation. So sin creates an isolation of God, of an isolation from God, right? A sense of isolation. Um, I said this in the, in the introduction. And it's so true. If you want to continue in sin, you want to continue to let idols of your heart rule, you will feel a sense of absence of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Depart and go up from here, you and the people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Prezerites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, this chapter is about whether the presence of the Lord is going to go with the people. Is the presence of the Lord going to continue with the nation or not? And though God will keep his covenant promise to bring these people to a land that he promised to their forefathers, the rebellion of the people meant that God could no longer be close to them and reside with them in this tabernacle setting that Moses now has is he's bringing down the mountain he has the blueprints for this tabernacle so that God can dwell within them but now because of their sin God says I'm not going to go with you you take them up I'm going to send an angel I'll fulfill my promise that this nation is going to go into this land but I'm not going and I'm not going to reside with you the grace of God is is so on display even with rebellious people And even in this, as God is testing Moses to see what he's going to do, is he going to be the mediator for these people? Is he going to lay down his life for them? He's testing them, but the grace of God is still there, even with rebellious nation. And God is gracious with us when we are sinners as Christians, isn't he? So notice what he does. He'll say, I'll even drive out your enemies. I'm going to take you up. I'm going to take you to the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'm all going to drive out your enemies. Even though you've rejected me, you've rebelled against me, you've broke my first two commands. But I myself am not going. I'm going to give you a divine angel to do the work. And certainly this indicates a a much uh, lesser divine presence of God, right? Angels come from the presence of God. We see that in the in the radiance that comes from them. But this is certainly a much lesser presence. This is why angel worship is a dangerous thing. It's in, it's in every religion but Christianity. And they are powerful beings, but they are not God, and Moses knows this. But here God says that he'll go up to you and physically be there to guide you and get you into the land and push your enemies out, but I'm not going. Look at verse 3. God says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Now, the land itself will still be possessed, right? We see this. With all its fruitfulness and desirability that God said it is land flowing with milk and honey, that's just a term I remember as a little kid trying to picture what that looked like, you know. Then I got into agriculture, and go, oh, it's super fruitful, it's just, you know, everything grows well and so forth, and lots of animals feeding and reproducing. But the pres- immediate presence of God will be withdrawn here in verse 3. Now the second part of this verse gives a definite statement. God says, I will not go up, now look at this, in your midst. In your midst. And think about it. all those instructions, we went through them already in the previous chapters for the tabernacle They're seemingly void or at least put on hold right now. He's designed this way for him to reside with sinful people. It's a unique way for a holy God to be amongst his people in the middle of them. And right now he says, I'm not doing that anymore. You can build your tabernacle, but I'm not going to fill it. Because you're rebellious. All the instruction here is put on hold. And notice God Cannot dwell with a stiff necked, obstinate people. This speaks of their rebellious attitudes that will eventually call for God's wrath to consume him. Notice he says there on the end, I might destroy you on the way. And some people go, Oh, God's just mean. No, that's the wages of sin, isn't it? If it wasn't for God's mercy, they all should have died just as us, right? And so we see the character of God. Why don't we study the Old Testament? Because God doesn't change in the Old Testament. He's in the New Testament, right? It's all just fulfilling the plan of how he's going to get us in the presence of him for eternity through the Lord Jesus Christ. God still hates sin. Sin is the wages of sin is death. It never has changed. And so he says, Look, if I go with you at this point, I might destroy you because you deserve it. Look, there's no other way that God could just overlook defiant rebellion. He can't overlook it. One of the things we try to help people with is to turn from rebellion. And I don't want to make light of regular sin, because it's evil and it put our Savior on the cross. All of our sins did. But God keeps his eye on rebellion. He does not care for it. And he usually acts swiftly against rebellion. And we see it. That thousands have died because of this rebellion. Look at verse 4 with me. When the people heard this sad word, it's called. <laughs> it is sad. God's not going with it. I'd be terribly, not only sad, I'd be frightened. How are we going to fight all the ites? <laughs> How do we take on them? And so when they heard this sad word, they Look what happened. This is good news. They went into mourning. And none of them put on their ornaments. Now, it seems at some point, Moses left the presence of the Lord, and he begins to speak to the nation. And here in this verse, you see the response, don't you? God's word is disturbing to them, and they they understand that this was punishment for the sin. But it it, it does seem to realize that they're understanding some kind of great loss here. These are sad words. We've lost the presence of the Lord. And I really think there's some, at least in somebody in the camp, there's some genuine repentance here. They're genuinely repentant. They've seen what they have done and how this God had saved them from Egypt and split seas and fed them from the skies and flew meat in for them and Wiped out enemies. And in the first moment, they turned away, and some of them are repentant, it seems. Notice the word mourn in that verse 4. Mourning expresses a sense of loss. In this case, it was due for sin, but there's still loss. Notice also the response of the nation is humility. They remove their jewelry. I thought that's really Interesting. You know, they didn't have any jewelry probably when they left Egypt. But God blessed them. God gave them wealth when they left Egypt and instead of using that wealth for him, what'd they do? They turned it into a idol. That's why often many of us, God does not give us too much because we'll end up serving it instead of serving the God that gave it to us. We need to be good stewards of the thing God gives us. But they remove this jewelry from them and they... At one time, we're so proud of it, probably. We're this group of people who were slaves. We had nothing. And then God brings us out of this nation. And in the nation that, that God judges gives us all this jewelry, gives us the finest of earrings and brooches and so forth. Chapter 35, verse 22, you're going to see this. He's going to list what these ornaments are. And they actually, later, they use those things to decorate the temple. But instead of praising God for providing for them and giving them expensive things, it turned into an idol. Look at verse 5 with me. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I will destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. There's a test coming, isn't it? So he first tells them to remove the jewelry. And it seems for at least a moment these people realize the fragile relationship between them and God. We're about ready to lose the presence of a God who did phenomenal things, miraculous things. We're about ready to use it because of our rebelliousness. And and it's clear, they they hear the word of the Lord here, and they understood His holiness, and they understood the the dissatisfaction God has with sin. And they remove things, right? Look at the end of verse 5. It says, put off these ornaments, these jewelry from you. Now, I have heard this abuse so many times. Ladies, it's okay to wear earrings. I mean... But anything in all of our lives that gets in front of God, it's time to pull it off, get rid of it. God wants our love. He wants our heart, our soul, our mind. And that's a, this is a lifetime of working on that. But when we put things in front of us and we start to desire things and we find ourselves consumed with those things, it will not take long before they're idols. And you'll find yourself at odds with the holy God. But notice verse 6, so the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb on. I think, it seems, in the spirit of remorse which come upon these people, they obeyed the Lord and they stripped off this jewelry. It was a real act of humility and obedience. Notice that he said that I may know what to do with you. He's testing you. He's testing them right now. Will you obey me? Boy, I've had God test me sometimes in my life and ministry. Take you to the brink at times. Say, "Well, what are you going to do, Scott? Are you going to follow me in this or are you going to cave? Are you going to stand for me when you're being challenged? Are you going to lovingly speak the truth or are you going to cave? God tests his people. He He wants us to know what we believe in, right? Would they obey would they love, what would they love more? Look, obedience is always a mark of repentance. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm repentant, and then not change, right? Repentance means what? Change in direction, right? The train's about ready to crash in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Conversion stops it before you're totally destroyed. Repentance backs it up and goes back to the place where you didn't obey God, and you make the right decision to obey Him. Is that a good illustration? and then we all should be doing that. God, I confess that sin. I need to repent, Lord, help me turn from this. And I think that's what's happening here. God says, "I want to know. I don't know what to do with you." And again, God is testing them. He knows exactly what he's going to do with them, but he's pushing the nation, he's pushing Moses. And look, obedience will always bring the blessing of God. And you say, well, well, he'll give me what I want. No, at least what he does, at least, which is the best thing we can have on this earth, is he'll give you joy. You may be still broke at the end of the day, but you'll have joy. And you can't buy joy. Joy is one of the greatest gifts of the work of the Spirit in our life. So obedience always brings about the blessing of joy and it reveals the will of God. Obedience will, will bring about the will of God. If you're searching for the will of God, obey him. I promise you, he's not hiding his will from you. <laughs> but if you live in sin or dabble in sin or play around with it, and yet, oh, I just want God to show me what to do, it's going to be very difficult to see. And so you see God testing these people. This is, so many people have misused this, these passages in there. Oh, see, so you can change God's mind. See, so he doesn't know exactly what he's going to do. That is such baloney, isn't it? Our God is omniscient, sovereign in all things. He's testing these people. Do you love me? It's like Peter, more than these. <laughs> you do say that you're not going to, everybody else will fall away, Lord, but I will not. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? He's always trying to see if we know what's really in our hearts. I love that about Lord. He loves us and he doesn't want us in sin. Now notice the nation seems to be eager to respond to God's divine requirements. And notice this in verse six, they strip this stuff off of them, Right? The very stuff that caused them to stumble into sin, the very things that led to this idol in their life something they held so dear, they stripped them off and obeyed God. It's just a great, you know where this question's coming. What do you need to strip off? What do you need to get rid of? What's in that heart that has to go here? See, so God had granted these riches, and they turned into idolatry. Now, it seems, looking at this passage and then looking forward It seems that from this time on, from this Mount Horeb, which is Sinai, it's another name for it here, the nation no longer wore personal jewelry. The study of the Old Testament, you don't find it. And it seems from here on, they removed it again in chapter 35, verse 22, when they they do start the construction of the tabernacle, God says, bring those things, Moses gives them an order, God through Moses says, bring those things. They actually bring all that stuff that they had set aside, and they use that for the house of God for those things instead of Sin that it was used for before. So there seems to be genuine repentance here. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long it lasts. But it's, you don't find it like this ever again in the Old Testament. Now, second thought. The privilege of meeting. Uh, excuse me. The privilege of private meeting with God. There's a privilege of a private meeting with God. You and I have this now under the New Covenant. But I want you to look at this passage and think with me. At this point, Israel's history, Moses, has built a tent of meetings, right? The tabernacle's not built yet. He has the instructions. They've been given to him. on those 40 days on the mountain. It hasn't been built yet. So there was a tent of meetings. As this is where Moses met with God. The tabernacle was coming later. Now, this tent of meetings was tied to Moses in his commissioning as the mediator. This is where he was to meet him, come into this tent of meeting, and, and meet with God. And it was there that the Lord was pleased to show to Moses and to recognize Moses as a mediator and talk with him and lead him there. So in verses 7 through 11, that brings us to this description of the tent of meeting, what's going on there. And this particular passage is, is not explaining what, what happened exactly right at this moment, but it's showing how God used it. Look at verse 7. Now, Moses used to notice that, take the tent. Now, so that shows you that he's writing this all. Moses is writing this later. He's talking in past tense here. He used to use the tent a certain way. He pitched it outside the camp at a good distance from the camp. Remember, the tabernacles would go in the middle of the camp, but this was in the outside, and he called it the tent of meetings. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent, out out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now So this used to explain that it was something that was happening before the tabernacle. So Moses was the only covenant mediator with whom the Lord would have direct fellowship. Now, others would seek guidance, and there they would come to Moses and and the other leaders, and Moses would seek God and know how to lead lead the people through this tent of meanings. Look at verse 8 with me. And it came about when Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent. And gaze after Moses, uh, gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Now the tent was not Moses's daily dwelling place, right? He had his own tent somewhere, and, but he used this on particular occasions to seek the direction of God. And clearly, the nation was acutely aware that this is a time where God speaks or comes into the presence. Uh, Moses comes into the presence with the Lord, and there's a sense of respect. Notice this: there's a sense of respect. To, even an anxiousness that Moses is about ready to intercede. You can see them standing in front of their tents. They're, What's going to happen here? Look at verses 9 and 10. Again, this is not necessarily at this moment, although I think it is, this is where Moses is talking to the Lord during this event. But it's helping us understand how Moses was dealing with, with God. Verse 9, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. So it seems that after Moses would enter the tent, this cloud, this presence, this divine presence of God, that's what it represented, Would appear over the entrance of the tent and notice the posture of Moses and the people. They were, it's all very similar. They're standing, they stood in respect. And the Lord communicated with them. This is a posture of reverence. Now, here, when we read scripture on Sunday mornings, we have you stand. Now, I don't think it's wrong to sit when God's word, I know there's a lot of people that love to build little things that they, they, little hills they want to die on. But we do that, as elders, we do that because we want you to honor God's word. And it's, it's a way of us saying, God, you're worthy of us to stand at attention as you speak. We're honoring the word of God. And so we read the scriptures that way. And this was the, the way they handled it here. They, they both stood in respect. Moses stood before God. The people stood before all that they had, right? All they had in this time was a tent and their kids and And the stuff they got out of Egypt with, that's all they had. And they stood there before the Lord in worship, the Bible says. And why it's worship is because they're acknowledging the authority of God in their life. That's why it's worship. They're acknowledging, God, you are in control. We have nothing without you. (laughs) In fact, you can wipe us out and rightly so for what we just did. That's why I think there was genuine repentance here. Notice at the end of verse 10, there seems to be a present tense to this moment. So all of a sudden in verse 10, we start to understand this is probably happening now, meaning Moses is starting, starts his dialogue with Yahweh and the nation assembles in reverence. What's God? What's he going to say now? We just worshiped this calf. 3,000 guys got killed. I mean, this is crazy. What's God going to do now? When you think about it. They're standing there in front of all that they have, before this holy God who swallows people up and drowns them in, in, in seas and feeds out of the skies. And, and here they're standing there. Their sin has been made evident. They're, they have people they know that died in the rebellion. And it seems they have a change of a heart and they're standing before a holy God. It's a really sweet thing to have a change of heart of your sin. God's greater to you. He's more glorious when you've dealt with your sin. When you've repented of something and you told God that you were wrong. And you use terms like this, God, that sin cost your son's death. Will you forgive me? See, he becomes more glorious when we deal with sin. Smooth over sin, blame shift it, God gets less glorious in your eyes oh he's still glorious he gets less glorious in our eyes look at verse 11 thus the Lord used to speak to Moses so he goes back to this is how things were face to face just as a man speaks to his friends and when Moses returned to the camp his servant Joshua the son of Nun the young man would not depart the tent well look at the privilege that he had this mediator who would who could enjoy this face-to-face fellowship with God. The word face is a strong word. It represents the presence of God. I don't believe Moses is seeing God, and I'm going to deal with that just in a moment. But he's in the face, he's in the presence of God. Otherwise, Other place this word is used where everything is in the presence of God, and it literally you could translate, everything is in the face of God. He sees past, present, and future. It's all right here in front of him. It's great Old Testament use of the language uh, to understand that. But he's right in the presence of him. And, and, and we see that he enjoys this fellowship with God. And, but we do not see such close access to God with anyone else than Moses. I mean, study the prophets. Some of them had great visions. Isaiah 6, he steps into the vision of heaven. Some of them have dreams. Some of them are led to do some amazing things. But Moses seems to be the one who enjoys the presence of God. And I think that is because he represents the type that Jesus Christ is going to fulfill. And there's no one who enjoys the presence of God more than Christ. And so there's this beautiful relationship between Moses and God because it reflects a coming Lord Jesus Christ. But... Not only does Moses enjoy God's faithful relationship, all those who have a relationship with him in Jesus Christ in the new covenant time or era enjoy the same thing. Let's think about when the night before Jesus died. John 15. John 14, he's talking about, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Philip's going, hey, well, are you going to show us the Father? Have you seen me? you Have seen the Father? I am the way, the truth, and life. Works his way all through that. And then he gets to John 15. And he begins to talk about vines and fruit. And if I'm, I'll, I'll abide in you, my Father and I will abide in you. And then he gets to this statement to these 11. He says, John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves. You remember this passage? For the slave does not know what his master is doing. See, Moses is there communicating with God, and God is telling Moses. He's not telling them. He's telling Moses, here's what I'm doing. Because Moses was a friend of God. He had the right to be in his presence. And he says, but I call you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. We are friends of God. And you have that because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love studying Moses because it reminds me that's my position through the new covenant. I can stand in the presence of God. I can be in his presence anywhere, at any time, speak with him, because I'm not a slave to the Father. I'm one of his sons. I am joint heir with Jesus Christ. He has a place at the table for me. He has made my position holy so I can stand for eternity with him. I think that's awesome when you look at this. Moses is talking to God. So do you. See, we can look at this and go, wow, this is, I could wish I could see this What it could have been there. Who prayed today? Anybody? You stepped into the presence of the almighty God and spoke with him. I hope it just wasn't for dinner. <laughs> Hopefully somewhere today you took time to talk to an almighty God because God granted you the position through the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ, to step into his presence. He is no different. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is our God, isn't he? And so speak with him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? We all know that verse, don't we? How many of us thought about it today? Did you think about that when we went to sin? I'll just take the Spirit of God and I'll go in and do something wicked, something godless. See, he's reminding us, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Moses has confidence to come into the presence of God because God has allowed him to do that. We have confidence to come into the presence of God because Christ has brought us into the Holy of Holies through his own blood. See the connection, how beautiful it is. Look at the verse, into verse 11. Real quick, because we want to just poke at um, Joshua just for a moment here. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart the tent. I think after this conversation, when the Lord was finished speaking to Moses, he returned to the camp. Remember, the camp's outside, but young, young jo- Joshua here stays behind. I think that's fascinating. I just want to make a comment about it here. Young Joshua stays behind, and I think this is doubtlessly part of his training. Right? He's he's seen what's happened. I think he's in the tent. I don't think he comes out and sees the you know part of the presence of God with Moses. But he's there, and he's probably left there because we know he was a great soldier, that he was there to guard that Ten of Meanings. But Joshua, though he doesn't get to see the presence of God even on the mountain because Moses picks him up on the way down. We saw that last week. He is there, and he's beginning to see how Moses interacts with God. And this is all preparation for this future leader. And we know as they're out just outside across the river with Jericho on the other side, Moses is dead now, and Joshua is leading him. He now meets with God. As he prepares to take them in, and most likely the pre incarnate Christ in that situation. Third thought um, the Lord's presence is pleased with the mediator. The Lord's presence is pleased with the mediator. In verse 12, the narrative begins again, right? It took a little hiatus to help us understand the ten of meetings and what was going on and how God was talking with Moses and so forth. But now we return to the previous. Verses, we begin to see the conversation that took place in the tent of meeting and here this text starts to explain what the presence of the Lord was about and like. And Moses, he's able to meet with the Lord in the tent outside the camp. He's still trying, this is what Moses is going to do, he's still trying to restore the special coming of the tabernacle which means the presence of God will be with the nation. So that's what he's about to do here in these next, next verses. But that's not all. Not only does he want... God to come and be in the tabernacle that he has the blueprints for and be with the nation and go into the land. Moses wants something personally from God. He has now understood that God is knowable and he wants to know him greater. And these verses start to come up, come, come apart and you begin to look at them. They're so glorious. Maybe several days has probably passed, I would imagine, in the timeline here since the idolatry. And this is the third time Moses has interceded in our text for for the people. But again, the context shows that Moses is arguing for the nature of God's covenant relationship. Once again, he comes before the Lord. Look at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord. So maybe this is the scene now present. He showed us what the the Ten of Meanings was about. Now here's the present scene as he's in the tent. He says, see... You say to me, bring up this people. This this, this is Moses talking to God. (laughs) See, you say to me, you, God, say to me, Moses, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, Moses seems very confident here to talk to God and speak to Yahweh as a friend, doesn't he? You ever have a stern conversation with a friend sometime? My best friend is my wife, and we have those every once in a while. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't love him, but there's a stern conversation going on here. And, and look at Moses. He has confidence. He's speaking to Yahweh. But he's speaking truth to Yahweh. Yahweh will always receive truth, especially spoken from the heart. Now clearly Moses is speaking of leading the people to the promised land and he's certainly familiar with this rebellious people that he's trying to lead but you can hear the tone of Moses considering this task is impossible unless someone more than this mere angel you're talking about lead them. And look, Moses wants to know who's going to lead them, an angel? This isn't sitting well with him, is it? And Moses believes in God's original problem. Excuse me, promise that he is implying that God needs to finish what he started. I think Moses says, God, you started this. You told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You promised all of this. Look at he says there in verse 12. And you said, I have known you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. So now Moses is using that relationship that he has with him and he calls upon his friendship with God through the covenant relationship. Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Boy, I love the mediator here and how he's really mediating for himself and for the nation. And you can see Moses' plead with great humility, great intensity. That the Lord would reveal to him what's going on here. And Moses knows that unless God reveals his desires to him, he'll never know the truth. If God doesn't tell him, he will not know the truth. And I love that. You'll never know the truth till you believe God's word. There's all kinds of false things flying around out there. Study God's word. Notice he says, let me know your ways so that I may know you. What a statement. Let me know your ways so that I'll know you. I want to know what you do, and that will tell me and prove to me your character. In other words, here's what I think Moses is saying, with a fuller understanding about how the Lord intends to act, Moses then will have a greater knowledge of the character of God and what he wants from them. So without knowledge, Moses knows they'll just stumble into all kinds of difficulties. And if the leaders stumble, like Aaron did, the people are never going to make it. And so Moses is pleading for the Lord for his promise to to come through to care towards his people and and reminds reminds God of his established covenant, right? And notice right at the end of verse 13 he says, This nation is your people. (laughs) Now this is not surprising to God in any way. He wants to see if Moses believes this. What are you going to stand up for? And it's just flooding out of Moses' truth. You gave this covenant. You started this with our forefathers. You have revealed yourself to me. I want to know what you're doing. And don't forget your people, God. That's a great mediator, isn't he? Look at verse 14. And he said, this is God now speaking, my presence should go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, the Lord's reply is very short here. It consists of just four Hebrew words. But the word presence here is literally my face. My face will go with you. I'll see everything and I will be in your presence. This is strong language than just, uh, much stronger language than just a, a divine angel going. God has responded to the repentance. God has responded to the mediator who has been mediating on behalf of these people reminding God of his promises, and God is not going to forsake his people. But the second part of the phrase is singular, right? So the first part, look at verse 14 with me. My presence shall go with you, plural, the nation. But what's really fascinating in verse, in verse 14, it says, and I will give you singular rest. Hmm. God is going to take care of those who believe him. God will see and give Moses rest is what he's saying. Verse 15 begins to help us understand a little more. Then he said to him, now Moses is coming back to the father and saying this, if your present doesn't go with us, do not lead us up from here. And Moses is just not pleading on his own behalf. He's pleading for the rest of, uh, for, for not for just his rest, but for the full assurance of the God's divine plan that He's laid down before the foundations of the world to present this nation to dwell in the tabernacle like You promised You would, um, and be in the midst of us. That's what He's pleading for. And so Moses' reply says, "If you're not going, I'm not going." <laughs> I don't know how many times I've said that to the Lord, Scott. I want you and Gina to go to Florida. I'm not going. You ain't going. <laughs> There's just no way. You don't pack your family up and cross country to a group of people you really don't know unless you know God's going with you. And you work very hard to understand if this is my will or his will. You you work hard to say, God, is there sin in my life? Things that that I have idols that I'm serving that I'm maybe even unaware of. Show those to me. I don't want to make a mistake here, Lord. I want to follow you. Because I don't want to go where you're not going. See, what I think Moses is saying, he says, "If Lord, if you're not going to display your presence, your power, your authority with the people, we will not be distinct from the rest of the nations. We're going to be just like the rest of them. Because we won't exist for your glory. And I think Moses is saying that he would he would be better to just to remain here in the wilderness. We'll just stay here at Horeb. We'll stay here in the Sinai Desert. We just won't go because if you're not going to go, we're just going to be like everybody else. And if you're going to stay here on this mountain, we're going to stay here on this mountain. I think that's what he's saying. That's a man passionate to be where God is. Are we passionate to be where God is? That's why elders pray so hard when we make decisions. Oh, God, lead us. Don't let us get ahead of you. We're not going down that road if you're not coming, Lord. We we need to follow you. But see, what happens so often in our individual plans and even church plans is we tell God where we're going and ask him to follow us. And we wonder why things fall apart. God, I'm going to marry this person. Come bless my marriage. God, I'm going to move here and, and never seek God. Never seek if there's a good church there, if, if this is the will of God, if there's disobedience in your life. And, and then you end up and back in our offices and all kinds of problems come with all those poor decisions because you really were not concerned if God was coming. You were concerned if he would follow you. And I've been there, man. You end up in the desert by yourself. <laughs> Any of us been out in the desert? I've been out there. I saw some of you out there. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, you know, I'm just wandering around. I got ahead of God thirsty tired and hot that's what happens moses he knows god i'm not going if you're not coming why don't we say that more and live our lives in such a way he wants the full blessing endorsement and he wants the presence of god look at verse 16 for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight? He's saying i found favor, but how can I know if I and your people, right? Is it not by your going with us so that, we and I, so that we, I and your people? Notice how Moses, the mediator, will not leave his people. He will not leave his post. He's staying with them. This is what Jesus does with us, right? He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's not going anywhere, right? may be distinguished from all those other people who are upon the face of the earth. See, he he turns to that previous argument to remind God of this distinguishing testimony of his people. These are your people. I and your people. We're not going without you. And, And just notice how... Moses, Moses just identifies himself with the people. Christ identifies himself with us. He took on flesh. He became our older brother. He is the greater Adam. Uh, he's, he's greater in every way, but he is our brother. And he fights for his family. And Moses is doing that. And he knows that all other attempts will just be failure. <laughs> He's not going without God. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Although the blessing is to be given to the people, it is not done by their merit. This is pure grace of God. These people don't deserve God. And we don't deserve God. But this is our God. He is gracious and compassion and full of mercy. And here we see this come out. Moses has passed the test and out comes the outpouring of the character of God. I will go with you. I will show my goodness. And I will show my love towards you and towards those who you lead. And the mediator has successfully presented his case before the almighty. And God has accepted him. And he's blessed. Last thought, number four. We'll try to finish up this chapter. He says, we, I, my point is here, we need to see the glory of God. Moses needs to see it. Now, after Moses had encouraged that God's presence will be with the nation, he goes one step further. I love this. He's now seeking help for his personal sanctification. Thank you, Lord, for coming with the people. Thank you for keeping your covenant like you always promised your would. But I got one more request. You remember back in verse 13, you can see it in verse 13. He said, let me know your ways that I may know you. There's something more Moses wants. He wants to know God greater. And now he has been mediating for this group. Now he turns and is now really mediating for himself. He wants to know God the Father. Look at verse 18. He says, then Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. The word I pray there, you see that in the text in verse 18. It's a really a form of please, Lord. But it's not just, please, Lord, did you do this pretty please? It's desperate please. And here's what I think what's going on in Moses' mind. I am so grateful that your presence will be manifest among us and you'll fill the temple, the tabernacle like you said you were. That's going to be spectacular. And I'm and I'm grateful for this. But I need to know you because I can't lead these people without knowing you greater. And there's this great desire to see God's character and being that, that He is. And I believe Moses is requesting. His request is coming from the realization that God has kept his promise. He's going to dwell with his people. And Moses now sees that God is knowable. You can know him. He's showing who he is. He's showing grace and mercy to this obstinate people. And so Moses is pressing in farther to say, if I'm your mediator, I want to know you. I want to be strengthened by who you are so I can lead this difficult people. This is pure worship. And that's what I think when we truly grow in the Bible, not for, not for verse plucks, so we have some little verse that makes us feel good about the day, but we really study the Bible and go, wow, that's my God. I think that's where you really find joy. And you find contentment in life. Because you're no longer just merely looking at verses, you're studying them with the goal to know God. And that's what Moses is after. Look at verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness. God's now responding to this great statement by Moses. I will make, I I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So the Lord, he doesn't object to the statement by Moses. I read this sometimes, I go, Moses, you were bold. But the, we just read a verse that says we boldly come into the throne of God, right? But he's bold here, right? And, and his request is not denied, but it's modified a bit, right? First he says, I myself, meaning I will take the initiative. It's under my control. This is going to be my doing. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass my goodness and my name, which is my character, my essence, my glory. And there's no substitute for them. And I'm going to pass them by you. And you're going to see it. And you're going to grow and know me. And this is, this is no way, uh, there's no way Moses could could be exposed. I want you to think about this because we're going to get into this more next week so I'm going to run out of time here in a minute. There's no way Moses could be exposed to the full radiance of the glory of God and so he tells him how he's going to do this. You're going to learn about me but it's going to be modified. You're not going to see me like you think you're going to see me but I promise you when I'm done, when I pass by you, you will see my graciousness, you'll see my loving kindness, you'll see my compassion and you will see my justice. And we'll see that next week, and that's exactly what he comes away with. Such a high view of God. Moses would have seen certain aspects of the visible manifestation of God as he burned on top of a mountain. He would have seen him as powerful. He saw his omniscience when he told him what was going on down the mountain when nobody else would know what was happening. He's seen certain aspects of it. But there's certain aspects of the glory of God that he had not seen. And God was going to reveal that to him, to give them the strength to lead these people to the edge of the land. Notice he says, furthermore, uh, excuse me, notice he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is a massive principle, uh, privilege. And every one of us who know Jesus Christ have seen the glory of God. You've seen it in Jesus. The Bible tells us that we have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. We've seen the glory of God. and, And so this is a beautiful statement. This transcendent God, this unequal God now is going to reveal to Moses who he is and his special blessing in his life. And notice also the Lord emphasizes his mysteriousness of his grace here. It's mysterious, isn't it? This is what we're studying on Sunday morning. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. So you want to start learning who I am right now? I'm perfect in everything I do, but I will put grace on whom I have grace, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And it is not on you. It's not merited on you. That's my decision. And he's laying it down. And, of course, we know Apostle Paul picks this up, and this is Romans chapter 9, isn't it? And look, there is no human accessibility to the logic to understand the Lord's way in this. And if you think you can figure out election, you're crazy. (laughs) We are not going to figure that out. We're just worshipers of it. All we know is God knows his before the foundations of the world. He draws them to and he shows grace to whom he wants to show grace to. And he shows compassion to whom he has compassion on. And he does it perfectly every time. And that's all we need to understand. He understands the rest of it. And think about this. Think about this nation. Full rebellion. Building golden calves. And God says, I'm going to be gracious to them. There's hope for us, isn't there? (laughs) This is what he does. He takes wretched sinners and makes us trophies of his grace. That's why Paul's so clear. I'm the chief of sinners. Undeserving. I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. He calls himself all those. And yet, God... Showed favor to me. See, This is where Christians need to get passionate about their salvation. And that should flow into tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening and through the weekend and relationships and so forth. It means it's getting to our hearts, brothers and sisters. We contemplate the divine nature of God. It just emphasizes His, His person. And God's grace still amazes us, doesn't it? When you think about Him. And through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he passes his glory unto us and we see his unfathomable riches. And that's what, why Paul, in the end of 9, 10, and 11, he gets to the end and he just talks about the unfathomable knowledge of God. Who can measure it? These, these chapters in the Bible just should excite us. God would be so kind. Paul takes this statement and sums it up. He he repeats it word for word almost out of the Old Testament into the New Testament in Romans 9.15. And then in verse 16, he says, So then it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And he's dead right. He's dead right. I am saved because God in his infinite wisdom put mercy upon me. And I don't know why. But it's not my job to know. I now am a worshiper. And I trust you are too. Look at verse 20 with me. But he said, here's a stipulation, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Seems there are some divine limitations that he gives Moses. And in verse 14, we're told that Moses met with God like a friend mates face to face and And this highlights, again, the the awareness of the presence of God, not so much seeing him, but the awareness. And and everything else we see in the Bible where man talks to God, it's most likely in those cases, if not the angel of the Lord, which in some cases is Jesus Christ, but sometimes his archangels are sent to do things, but many times it's the pre-incarnate Christ. But here there's there's some kind of phenomenon that's going on here, and think about this. You go, well, well did, God, did Moses actually see him face to face? And a lot of people think it does. But think, think this phenomena of infinite, the, the, the infinite one meeting with a finite one. It's, there's no way, there's no human faculties that would be able to get into the presence of God in that way in our flesh. There's no way you could do that. And so he says, look, you can't see me and live. Paul wrote it this way, 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, who alone possesses, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. This is why I don't think, and I, I think I've said this, and I've answered some people's questions on this, whether he actually saw God. He, he may have saw the pre-incarnate Christ, but he saw his attributes because he lives in an unapproachable light whom, Paul goes on to say, no man has ever seen or can see to him the honor and eternal dominion forever. God is spirit, John 4, 24. Now you go, oh, I want to see God. You have, Philip. You've seen him in the face of Jesus. We look at him every day when we study the words of Christ and we believe Christ, isn't it? Oh, I got to finish. Man, I'm down to a minute. Um, 2021, then the Lord said, behold, there there is a place by me. I think he's up on the mountain. And you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Here we find, I think, God talking to him from the mountain now. And to prevent Moses from being exposed to this full radiance of the divine glory of God, the Lord promises that he would protect him and he would put him in this cleft, this rock that would bring shelter to him. Many people think this might be the same place Elijah sheltered in in 1 Kings chapter 19. But notice that God's using these anthropomorphic illustrations, right? Language. He says, I'm going to put my hand over you. But God's spirit, so there's no hand. But he helps us realize the kindness of God to shield Moses from his glory. So that it would not consume him. Not only does he use the hand of God, notice he puts him in the cleft of the rock. And and notice the word there that it says, I'll cover you. It's the same Hebrew word we get for shield. I'm going to shield you from my glory so it doesn't consume you. All this does is tell us of the greatness and the vastness and and the power of our God, doesn't it? Now, look at verse 23 and we'll quit. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back. But my face you shall not see. I think it's a little difficult to determine how much we should read into these anthropomorphic terms here, face and back. But certainly his face would focus on his greatest divine features, uh, who he is and his radiance, and maybe his back as lesser. But I tend to think the word back here is, is in the plural. So I think it's indicating the after effects of God. The after effects of being with God. When you've had sweet time in the Word as we've had tonight, you have a sweet time personally with the Lord, there are great after effects. You have a peace that passes all understanding. You have a joy of knowing your God is in control, even in your most difficult situations. And I think that's probably more, at least that's my impression here. But regardless, God is so glorious and so full of brilliance and radiance in His present, uh, presence, He's, he's, he's overwhelming To anyone in their flesh we cannot stand in the presence of in in our own flesh in the presence of god and that's why god's going to give us new bodies they're like christ and who stands in the presence of christ mediating for us christ and the bible says when you see him you'll be like him so we're not going to go in this flesh we're going to go on new bodies so we can stand the radiance of the presence of god someday doesn't that get you excited let's go to heaven i mean man that isn't that beautiful Don't take me like this. I don't want this thing. It's barely make it in this life. (laughs) Give me the new one that can stand in the radiance of God. Amen, huh? Now, regardless of all this, this, these theophanies are amazing, aren't they? But they all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to get into this next week, but I want to warm you up. John 1 14. And the word became flesh, and we dwelt and he dwelt among us, tabernacled with us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The same thing Moses is going to see as God passes by, right? In verse 18 he says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he's the explanation of him. So you don't need to see God because you see Christ who is God and he's the full essence of God and praise the Lord he saved us through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? I'm done. Father, this gets so exciting. It just gets so Full of you, Lord. We, we we're just amazed and we long to be in your presence. We can't wait for new bodies. We can't wait for those bodies that can see the full radiance of your glory. And absorb it and, and worship and purity, Lord. And with not minds that wander into sin and hearts that want to build idols, Lord. We long for this. But Lord, while we wait, may we serve this same great God in these bodies of flesh. Lord, convict us of idols. Convict us of desiring our will before yours. Convict us of wanting to run out ahead of you in things, Lord. That we would wait on you, Lord. Wait patiently for you. You are right in all that you do. You will not lead us into evil. You will not lead us into destruction. You're here to save us. So Lord, give us trust in you. Lord, thank you for these good people, these dear brothers and sisters that will listen to this and heed these warnings and and encouragements, Lord. Lord, bless us, cause us to love you more tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.